Hey everyone, it's Amber Love from Vodka Talk Podcast and AmberUnmasked.com. And don't forget, this is an explicit website and podcast. And I say this as I welcome my special guest here for the first time, Wes Loker. Thanks for coming. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So there might be some minor spoilers, but I'm hoping, you know, we're not going to really wreck anything for anybody. But there's like, there's story points I wanted to talk about. Cool. Well, hopefully and, it'll it'll give them the opportunity to go and catch up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're hailing from balmy Florida, right? Yeah, down in down in the Florida panhandle. All right. Well, I'm up here freezing my ass off. <laughs> We're doing okay today. <laughs> um, so... We're going to talk about, you've got a bunch of projects going on. You've got Chambers, Unit 44, you've got a webcomic, and, you know, anything else that you want to mention, we'll make sure that we fit in there. That's cool. Um, Yeah, so Chambers, I wanted to talk about first, because it's like this, it's a really um, sort of different take on on a police drama for a comic book. It, It has a bit of a feeling of like an action movie to it. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's not something you see all too often, at least I don't see very often. I mean, a lot of times the uh, the comic pacing is it feels a little bit slower than you would expect. But this is like, you know, like could be starring Jason Statham. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think that um, well, I grew up on action movies and it's something that I really like. So the pacing was important. I wanted something that, that wasn't going to drag out, wasn't going to be this big, long whodunit mystery. I was more focused on the the why done it and the the why solve it, I guess, angle of it more or less. Okay, so um, since it's a, it's a crime book, let's talk about your art team. Tell, tell everybody who they are. Okay. The the series was, was penciled and inked by a fellow named uh, Christian Rossi, and he is from Argentina. And uh, the colors were provided by a fellow named Kifis Armando, who hails from uh, Indonesia. Cool. So how did you hook up with these people? Okay. Well, with uh, with Christian, um, I've worked with him numerous times at this point. We actually came together for um, another project. I hired him to do uh, a one-shot that actually hasn't even come out yet. But um, while we were working on that, um, I had originally pitched Chambers uh, with a different artist, and I finally got got a taker with the, the publisher, Arcana Studio. Um, but as soon as they said, yeah, we'd, we'd love to do this with you, uh, the artist that I had originally, he backed out. He wanted to work on some other projects, so I had to go through the process of of replacing him, which is, you know, as someone that does comics, you know, that's that's not the best position to be in. Um, so I was talking to Christian, and I just said, "Hey, man, you know, when we finish this up, I've got this other thing that's coming. Um, if you could just, if you're interested, here's the script. Check it out. Uh, we would just need a test page from you that I can give to the publisher to show him that that you're a good fit." Um, and he did that and just knocked it out of the park. It, you know, in my opinion, it was it was better than the original version, and the publisher said, "Good, we'll we'll take him," and we just went rolling uh, right from one project into the next. So the pitch didn't already did it already include like sample pages? Usually, they ask for like five pages or something. Yeah, the the pages that I initially had sent over were were just a five page sequence. Original. Yeah. Okay. I see. So okay, but then Christian was able to to crank something out when you need Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And really fast but, too. I mean, that guy is super professional. He just, he works like clockwork. And what's the, like, is, is the story going to continue? 
Um, I hadn't planned for it to continue. Um, it's it's kind of just a, a one and done. It's I told the story that I wanted to tell. Um, if if in the event that it were to make you know a million dollars and and the publisher came back and had asked me to do a sequel, I think I know where I could take it. But I'm pretty content with it just just being what it is and it speaking for itself. Right. Well, I, I mean, there's definitely an ending to this story, and that's something that sometimes you don't feel. Right. Um, but uh, it's a lot of times it seems like people once they once they get into the groove of something they they're like, oh wow, I really did want to hang on to these characters <laughs> or this city or something. Like you could always have you know, um, the city is actually something I wanted to talk to you about because for some reason I was thinking it was set in Ireland, but. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that. I think because all the pubs are are like Irish named pubs or something. Yeah, I I, I love a good Irish pub, so that was important for me to get in there. Um, The the city is never really named. If you you look through um, on some of the the police badges, it actually has has the city. Um, It's it's actually set in in Orlando, Florida, which is where I was living when I wrote it. Um, It really bears not a whole lot of resemblance to that, but it's not not really important in the grand scheme of things either. It's kind of one of those – those pieces that could be any, you know, any type of urban setting would be a would be a good spot for chambers to take place. Okay, so I mean, as I just sort of like teased that it's a police crime drama and that there's a mystery involved. Uh, what is your pitch that you you know your elevator pitch to get new readers? Um, for chambers, it's it's the story of of Denise Chambers who comes from a family full of law enforcers. Um, and someone is taking an axe to her family tree, and she has to figure out who's doing it before it's too late. Right. And there's um, – very quickly we learn that there's a lot of corruption because she's it, it opens up where they're at a funeral um, for, for one of her family members. And then, we, you know, we immediately get into the fact that so much of the police force is was corrupt. They were caught. They were booted off their jobs. So um, – that's that's again a very like '80s sort of feel to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, where you know was there any particular inspiration from real news stories or old shows or something that brought you to that? Um, I I just like old pulpy gritty crime movies and and I'm a big fan of of crime comic books. Uh, I took a took a hiatus from reading and one of the things that kind of got me back into them about five or six years ago um, was Ed Brubaker's Criminal series. And that's something okay. that, that really struck me. And and then after reading that, I was reading, uh, you know, the Parker books from Darwin Cook. And, and I guess I wanted to kind of do my homage to that type of story. So that was definitely definitely the influence and, and the desire kind of came from reading those. OK. Um, yeah, there's a new Parker book out. It just came out. I know. A couple I, weeks ago. I haven't had the opportunity to read it yet, but I'm really excited to get my hands on it. Yeah, those are by IDW, and I also highly recommend them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the new one's called Slayground. Yeah. Okay, great. Great things. Um, but Chambers, obviously, there's uh, a nice play on words there, because you, you, know, you <laughs> name, the, name the family Chambers, and then you always think of, like, Chambers of the Gun. Right. Uh, and we have a lot of this. You do have a lot of guns in this. Uh, it's definitely, like I said, action movie. You have to be prepared for that. And the bullets never run out. <laughs> they have to do. <laughs> so, um, but Denise is like really this very hot-headed female cop character. And, uh, is, you know, even though like these, these awful things are happening, 
she doesn't stop. Like she never just collapses and gives up and she doesn't, she doesn't wallow in any kind of pity or anything. So I, you know, I really wanted to talk about the character development there that you have for, you know, like, why did you, you know, did you specifically want, you know, this main character to be female? And, you know, why did you choose those particular traits? Okay. Um, I, I definitely did always want the character to be female. Um, I think that it's important to to show a strong female lead where you can. I don't think that we always see enough of those in comic books. Um, and, and a lot of the, the people in my life, the women in my life, whether it's my family or, or my wife, they're all very strong people. So I wanted to, I kind of wanted to bring that across. I wanted to to show that, that a female can be strong, can be intelligent, can be just as stubborn and determined as, as any type of male counterpart. So that's absolutely something that I, I really wanted to get across and, and kind of open up the, the book to maybe an additional audience. I had a lot of female reviewers that checked out the book, um, and I specifically sent it to a lot of them just because, you know, I, I wanted to get their thoughts. I wanted to make sure that I was doing a good representation, and, and I've had nothing but positive feedback from them. So it's been a good experience. And, um, you know, I hope that people can kind of relate to the character and just just being a hothead is is enough to, to keep you going sometimes. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where um, it's uh, like as far as like mainstream characters go, like the only comparison that I could think of was Renee Montoya from DC Comics. Sure. Um, and they're, you know, maybe maybe a couple of the, the ladies from Birds of Prey or something. But um it's you know it's interesting because there's so much debate just around the phrase strong female character that um you, you know like strong you know should not have to mean action hero right and yet that's often what people automatically think of true uh, um like a, you know was your mom a a police officer or was you know your <laughs> wife a police officer running around no, and kicking I, ass <laughs> no, I, I have no police officers in my family that I'm aware of, but um, I think a lot of the, the qualities that make up Denise probably came from um, my family and, and my wife, just as far as, you know, the stubbornness and the persistence and the intelligence. I, I really tried to embody a lot of that there. They're qualities that I'm very familiar with and that I that I like in a person, so I wanted to bring those across to the reader as well. So if Denise were... Um you know, like if she were a real person, would she, like, she has obviously like a best friend, you know, and that's the main part of the story. Is she the type of person that only has like that person in her life or, you know, would a character like this be able to have friends? I think that, um, I wouldn't think that Denise has a very big social circle. I think she's the type of person that her, her work almost becomes her family. And because her father and her brother were also police officers, um, she probably just would surround herself with with similar minded people. Yeah, and then the the character's name is Bruce that we're you know that we're talking about mm-hmm. is you know becomes her partner and best friend and um this is where we get a little spoilery because it's like the journey of their relationship is really the driving force. Like the the mystery is sort of like you need to you need to follow the mystery, but it's you see it. It's not like the reader has to guess who done it because that's, it's shown who who done it. Absolutely. It's it's more about how how will Denise figure out who did it and how will she deal with the repercussions of those decisions that were being made. Um, and we can go ahead and 
and, and just talk about it. If people haven't read it, they can go pick it up on Comixology and hit pause. Um, but, but Bruce is, is the one that ends up um, being a part of the, the murder plot. And so as her best friend and as her confidant, it's more about how does she deal with that when she comes face-to-face with the truth. Right. Meanwhile, she's being chased by an entire police force. <laughs> chased and, and guided and, and misdirected and, and kind of finds herself um, taking out people that may or may not even be part of the bigger problem. Right. Um, did you ever, um, like, how like how many revisions did you go through w- with considering the character? Like, did you ever just want to have it end differently? Um, I had two different endings in mind. Um, it's, it's funny that you asked this because um, I, I started to think as I as we got closer to the end, I went back and forth with Christian and I kind of pitched him on. Well, you know, I have it written the way that it appears in the book, but I also have this other ending that that kind of puts it in a neat little bow, could could leave room for sequels. And, and Christian was really the one that said, um, you know what, you should go with your original instinct, because the first time that I read the script, I actually got chills when I got to that part. And I said, cool, that's that's all I needed to hear. That's the way that we're going to go with it. So I feel like he really, um, just art-wise, really brought that that ending, which I, I feel like is, is pretty strong and pretty unexpected. Uh, he really kind of brought that home. That's good. So do you have um, do you already have plans to work with Christian again on something else? Um, we have uh, two other things that will be out hopefully this year. Um, he's he's picked up some some work for higher stuff and he's going to be um, he's kind of working on, I believe, the Sons of Anarchy book for Boom Studios was the last thing that I heard that he had on his plate. So he's kind of he's doing his thing and, and I wish him all the, the success in the world. But I hope that we can kind of come back together and work on something else here maybe in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's great when you, you know, when you really click with somebody in, in particular, you know, and you already have a great dynamic. But like you said, you know, that's what happens when you when you <laughs> meet good people is then they start getting snatched up. Oh, absolutely. And um, uh, we can talk about Unit 44 now, which, you know, has a different art team. For sure. And and now this was a Kickstarter project, right? Yeah, we, we launched this as a Kickstarter back in, um, I think it was August, September. So just just a few months ago. Um, and that project is it's about as as different from Chambers as you can possibly get. Um, and I think that stemmed from the fact that I had been living in this crime cop world for about a year, and I really needed to to push myself to do something that was that was totally um, different tonally. Um, so it's a sci-fi comedy book, and uh, the first issue is, is done. It hasn't officially been released yet, um, but I'm looking to get it out hopefully as as early as February. This yeah, it was so much fun. It's uh, it's a very Men in Black sort of you know tongue in cheek government um, parody to it. We have Agents Gibson and Hatch that are supposed to be responsible for one of those public storage units, and it happens to be where the government is keeping all of these top secret pieces of evidence from uh, you know things like alien landings and all, every conspiracy and, and it, then eventually they realize they haven't paid the rent and, they get, <laughs> and the contents of the storage unit get, get auctioned off to a couple of rednecks. So um, this was hilarious when this was on Kickstarter and I, I don't know if you sent me the link or somebody else sent me the link. I was, I was just like, Oh my God, why has nobody done this already? It just it, like, <laughs> it, was, it seemed it. so so original. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad that you look at it. It was it was a fun to work uh, work on. Uh, the the artist um, Eduardo Jimenez 
uh, he, he, I can't imagine anybody else drawing that book. He really kind of came on board and just, and just killed it. His style is hilarious. It doesn't even need words to be funny, but, um, he's just done a heck of a job on that. And I'm super excited for people to kind of get their hands on it and start seeing what we're going for. Yeah, because you've got, you know, obviously like the buddy cop thing sort of going on where you've got the the uptight, straight-laced agent who's experienced and, um, you know, like he says, like, I've worn the same suit for 10 years. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you've got the, the new guy who's all young and fresh and energetic and his hair's all, you know, like messed up. And, you know, it's like he's like working for the man, but not going to conform with the man right. kind of thing. I just wanted it to be super accessible. So I was more than happy to kind of play on some of those those tropes that people are familiar with so that people could just dive in, you know, have some laughs and hopefully enjoy a good story at the same time. So did you um, specifically tell Eduardo what sort of character designs you were looking for? Or did you just like give a basic description and he took over? I gave a real basic description. The, the entire look of that book is, is all Eduardo. I mean, I really gave him it's important to me to give the artist a lot of freedom because if they're going to be living with somebody and living with characters for for a month or two months while they draw the book, I want them to have fun. Um, so he, he can take full credit. We went through a few revisions on some of the character designs, but. Um, those are those are just based off of maybe one sentence descriptions that I sent his way, and he just absolutely killed it. Yeah, one of the characters, um, like I said, that there's these rednecks that that appear, and he's got, you know, so he's got like this big beer belly hanging out <laughs> with the red T-shirt that's like way too small, and like his hairy stomach's always showing. And, and I, so, as a writer, I was looking at this, going, I wonder if he actually described that. <laughs> no, that was that was all Ed. That's fantastic. Um, so how did you meet Ed? Well, I was trying to figure out what type of style I wanted for the book, and, and I knew it had to be distinct. I kind of always saw it in my brain as, as almost like a cartoon, and that's not a style that I, I typically lean toward um, or even really read a whole lot. But I knew it had to be just visually very dynamic, and, and as I was searching out artists, and I had pitched it to a couple other people, and some people had done concept art, um, but it just it wasn't really where I wanted it. And somehow, I, I can't even remember how, and I know Ed doesn't either, but I just ran across his work on Twitter. Um, and so I sent him an email and sent him uh, the script for the first issue. And I said, hey, man, just check this out. Give it a read. I think your style's perfect for it. Um, and then he came back about a day later and said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm on board. Let's go ahead and do this thing. So we, we knew that we were going to go the Kickstarter route. And it was just a couple months later, and we were we were off to the races. So the when you decided to go with Kickstarter, was that specifically to pay Eduardo? He was. Or was it? Yeah, he's he's doing book I work for hire. He's a full time illustrator. So that's that's I mean that's how he makes his living. He does children's books. He does concept art. He does a lot of stuff. Um, but I knew that he wanted to go more in the comic book route. So this was a good opportunity for him too. Um, and it, so it was to it was to pay Ed. It was to make sure that he could eat while he was drawing this silly comic, and also so we could pay to to get it printed. And what was your um, your Kickstarter goal? We set a goal of uh, two thousand dollars, which would okay. which would cover pretty much everything we needed to. We ended up going over. We hit um, two thousand seven hundred something. Yeah. Okay. Um, and did it uh, was it down to the wire for you, or was it you know well, pretty steady? We had hit. Um, well, we had launched a Kickstarter initially to fund the the full four issue series, um, and we were. We unfortunately we didn't make that, um, but 
for Ed and I, that wasn't, that wasn't going to stand in our way. So we relaunched it two weeks later and just uh, went for the, the first issue, figuring, hey, if we can get this issue done, we'll have a proof of concept. We can sell this online, start to build some buzz. Uh, we can take it to conventions. And we, the second time out, we hit our goal within five days. That's really sweet. Yeah, so a lot of people that that helped us out the first time, even though it didn't fund, they came back immediately and helped us out a second time, which was really cool. I just saw, um, and I knew it was going to make goal within a day, um, but Dean Tripp's comic, Something Terrible, I think he was asking a really modest amount as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I knew it was going to hit in a day because everybody had already seen the the comic pages he had posted. And um, it's this really tragic story um, about child abuse. And his art is just phenomenal. Oh, okay. I, I know what you're talking about. That does look really good. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it was like, it was no question that when, when that went to Kickstarter, which kind of surprised me that it even was going to Kickstarter because I think he was doing like a direct purchasing thing off of his website that I know a lot of creators are doing now. They're not even, you know, they don't even look for distribution. Right. Other, you know, other than comicsology or something. Um, but a lot of people are just really owning their properties and not worrying about, um, you know, diamond and, and whatnot. For sure. And, and I think there's something to be said for just having a, if you're going to run a Kickstarter, just having a very modest goal. Um, it's amazing what, what I've seen some of these get up to as far as, as final totals go. Um, but if you if you start small, I think that your chances are better, and, and I think that you're more likely to, to go over your goal. If you have something, if you have a very modest amount and you have a good project. Yeah, because, I mean, you can't, you can't count on being the exception. Right. Because like Frank Cho just hit like $150,000 or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, but it's Frank Cho and it's an art book. It's, you know, kind of a different, a different animal there, but um, it's, you can't count on that. You can't even count on like the $50,000 runs that I've seen. You know, I, I've seen guys struggle to get like 6,000 or 8,000. Um, and, and then I know guys like, you know, how you did, Unit 44, as you changed it to one issue, um, other people like um, Joe Martino, he's doing his issue by issue as well for the Mighty Titan. Yeah, there's definitely, if, if you can build your audience, there's there's no reason why they, they shouldn't continue to support it as you go along. So I think it's a pretty good system, and it everybody's kind of trying to do their different thing, but um, just, I can't imagine, I mean, if we had reached $100,000, I wouldn't know what to do with that. It would probably stress me out to the point where I couldn't even work on the book anymore. Right. And, you know, and it's it, it's easier for people donating or pre-ordering, whatever you want to consider it, um, to part with less money. Yeah. You know, they can they can part with five dollars or, you know, ten dollars for a first issue instead of considering like, you know, oh, but this is going to be a hard copy book. I'm going to want forty dollars. <laughs> um, what other Kickstarters have, you know, inspired you to even go that route? Um for me, uh, I think the the Kickstarters that were the most inspiring uh, were were Tyler James and his uh, Comics Tribe Kickstarters. Have you seen those? Yeah. Okay, because that guy he he's figured he's great. it out. He is he is the man. He knows what he's doing. Um, so he has done a whole series of articles just that are available for free on their website about how to run a Kickstarter, what you need to consider going into it, uh, what you need to consider on the back end. Um, and I read a 
all of that stuff. And he's got some great tips some great tricks. And so um, that I would say that was probably the by reading those, I knew that it was more possible and I had a, more of a realistic approach to it, especially the second time. Yeah, I, I, he does give some great advice. And sometimes he'll just really take the time out on Twitter. Oh, yeah. And and uh, just, you know, spend an hour running through some like pro tip type stuff. Yeah, even with um, with Chambers, it's it's the first book that I've had that's gone through any type of diamond distribution. Um, so I, I've reached out to him several times just with questions about that. And he's guy super nice, super accessible. Um, even I met him at uh, the New York Comic Con this year and just all around just a great guy. And I wish nothing but the, the best for him and his company and his books. Yeah, I know uh, Joey Mulvey over there. Okay, yeah, and, I got to uh, get to meet him. He's a character. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I yeah. It, it really helps um, when when people are so friendly and they are so willing to share their lessons learned. Uh, you know, it's it, it's sort of um, like we don't need to compete with each other. Like, doesn't it help the industry if we all just like support each other and like try to all, <laughs> can't we all get along? Can't we all help each other improve? I mean, I there should be room for improvement for everybody. Um, you know, there's, and there's just so many different levels to comics. You know, I, I was just reading on Facebook that I guess a lot of people were recently complaining about the price of Adam Hughes's art, like original art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his, his poor wife has to defend him so much and go, you know, and just be like, look, this is the value of his work. He's been doing this 30 years. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, in my experience, everybody's been really cool, really helpful. Um, even after my Kickstarters were done, Tyler reached out to me and he had he asked me to put together an article just on the first campaign that I ran that was unsuccessful versus the second campaign that was successful and kind of the different approaches that I took. Um, and that's available on Comics Tribe, too. And I hope that if people check that out, they can kind of get some additional insight because it's not something that you can just just jump into and ex- expect success. There's really a lot that goes into it. So um, people should definitely check out all of those articles if they're thinking about running a comic book Kickstarter because there is a lot to learn. Yeah, there definitely is. And unfortunately, people can get really jaded. Yeah. Um, when stuff doesn't come out, that's why, I mean, it's important, you know, like guys like Jamal Eigel, when Jamal did his Kickstarter, I mean, he's got such a fantastic reputation and he's stressed out, <laughs> stressed, you know, he, it's not like he's, you know, he earns his confidence, let me put it that way, yeah. like he sweats, he sweats that confidence, um, but he was really stressed doing that Kickstarter for Molly Danger and, you know, when he left D.C. and he's got this new job with Action Lab and it's, you know, but it's one of those things where we can look at somebody who's got this, you know, this 20 year veteran career and, you know, and learn from them and just, you know, realize that, hey, it, it, we can be the new people. And if we're going to try to do Kickstarter, we're not going to ask for like 40,000. We're going to, you know, ask for ask for a couple thousand to get our issue out, get our names out there. I mean, with Chambers, it's great that you pitched to Arcana and, and, you know, hooked up with them because, like you said, it's it's diamond distribution, so it's a bit more visible. Right. Um, but a lot of people are considering Kickstarter a publisher now, and they're not. I mean, they're not printing the books for you. They're not warehousing them, and they're not distributing them. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely it's an interesting stance on how to kind of get your, your self-publishing career started, and, and there's a ton of merit in it, and I think as the future goes on, 
Uh, that's something that we'll see a lot of a lot of veteran creators doing, a lot of new creators doing. But I can't help but feel like there's going to be kind of a, a tipping point with it. So for me, the other part of it was was trying to get my project in there before it maybe blew up in some sense because I'm interested to see what all what Kickstarter will be in in a year from now or even five years from now. It could be a completely different animal. It could be, and people are. Um like you said, they're getting saturated and fatigued by the Kickstarter links. Oh, yeah. Uh, it seemed like October was brutal. <laughs> like, I swear. Uh, it was just like, people, please, chill, chill out <laughs> the Kickstarters. You don't all need to do all of your horror books. And every single, like, everything was coming out in October. And it just, it was it was driving me crazy because there's a certain point where I'm just going to start unfollowing people. Right. And I, I know that's, that's one of your pet peeves. And, and that's the thing that I think I, I enjoyed the least about the Kickstarter process was, was just having to be that guy all for, for 30 days or actually it was more like 90 days since I ran it twice. And, oh man, I just, I hated having to go on there and, and promote it. But you know, you, you have to get the word out. You have to bring the backers to the party, but yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I get fatigued and, and it was, it was probably my least favorite part of that entire process. Yeah, I know creators that are like that. They're like, I just want to do my work. I just want yeah. to do the work part. <laughs> um, but you know, part of part of the Kickstarter uh, jade, jadedness, I guess, comes from. Uh, I was talking to to a friend of mine. He ran one. He had a really hard time running his too. Uh, but when we see the veteran creators, publishers, filmmakers out there on Kickstarter when we feel like you guys don't really need this, like it's supposed to be to kickstart people to, to break in and fund things a new way. Whereas you guys have publishing contacts and you could obviously take your pitch somewhere and get it picked up. And um, it feels like, like this unfair competitive advantage when, when a veteran creator pops onto Kickstarter, even though like you want it, you want everybody to be able to play on the same playground but at the same time, you know, like the little guy kind of getting lost. Did you have any like did you have any problems or getting lost against like bigger things that were running at the same time? Yeah, I don't I don't remember what we were running against. Um, we we hit at a pretty good time completely unintentionally where I don't remember anything that was kind of making millions of dollars in in potentially taking funds away from us. I hear what you're saying, though, about um, people that are, are more veteran in the industry, um, because we are essentially just where everybody on Kickstarter is competing for those those few spare dollars that people have to throw in on stuff. Um, the thing that helped us out is because we had so many backers that came over from our previous campaign, um, we stayed pretty much on top, um, just on the, the Kickstarter top 10 list that they do. Um, on the comics projects, we had pretty good visibility there, and I think that's what I attribute our going over the goal to. Um, that was really beneficial for us. Yeah, that definitely is. I know um, when I spend time on Kickstarter, surfing around and just trying to browse, it's not the easiest browsing no. and searching. Uh, um, that's something they, you know, I don't know if they plan on improving or, or what they can do to it, to improve it, but it's really. It's based on like, like you said, staff picks or featured or something like that are, are really prominent, and um, that's 
you know, that's great for those people, but there's probably thousands of projects on there. There are. It's, it's really easy to get lost in the shuffle. But when you think about it from the Kickstarter standpoint, they obviously are taking a cut of every successful project. So if something's making a ton of money, they want it to get more visibility so that it makes more money so that they can kind of keep their doors open. So it makes sense, but it does seem kind of like a, a nearly nearly broken system. Right. I mean, I don't know how it works with, with Diamond, um, other other than thinking, like, I've met people who actually work at Diamond, so I know it's humans and not <laughs> algorithms. That's um, but, you know, like, they have, when they have, like, a some sort of pick, like, what do they call, like, um, some kind of cool pick, I forget. Um, so it gets, like, a little stamp next to right. it, if you will, like, guaranteed cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is that that determines that other than the fact that somebody became familiar with the book and actually decided to spotlight it. Yeah. Um, you know, with Kickstarter, I have a feeling it is just a, a numbers game for sure. there. Like, uh, so what's your plan for um, Unit 44, Issue 2, then? <laughs> that is a, that's a great question that has kind of yet to be determined. I'm hoping... Um, I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to distribute it, which is the the number one question and the reason that it's not currently available uh, to everybody. Um, I, I really want it to be a self-publishing project, um, so I'm hoping that I can kind of do the trifecta of have the PDFs available, have the print copy available, and have it on uh, Comixology. And then in the event that I can sell X amount of copies of, of that, then we can actually go into production um, on the second issue, uh, and we may we may return to Kickstarter. I think that I really want to see how the reception is to the first issue, and and make sure that the review sites are able to check it out and see what type of type of feedback we get, and that'll determine the the course of history, as it were. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, good luck with that because I definitely want to see more of it. Me too. Um, the and the other project that I checked out of yours is uh, a web comic. And it's innovation is it innovation web comics? Which was the website? I forget. It's uh, innovationcomic.com. Innovationcomic.com. So you've got chapters that are like around like five pages each, um, and a different isn't it like a different artist every single chapter? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing sci-fi series um, that basically has. Uh, each each segment is four to six pages long, and a different artist contributes each chapter. So it's it's an ongoing story, um, and even though there are kind of multiple threads going, um, each one has a different style, and, and it's been a cool opportunity for me to, to spotlight artists that I really like. Um, there are some artists uh, that I've been trying to work with for a while on other things, and this was the, this is what really brought us together. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a sounding board for, for a lot of the, the talent that you know, I've worked with in the past or people that just kind of want to, um, have something published, but maybe haven't gone the traditional route, haven't had any, haven't had the opportunities. I'm more than happy to help them be that opportunity, and it's it's worked out really, really well so far. Yeah, I really in, enjoyed it um, because when I was first going through it, I thought um, they were all standalone, uh, like individual stories, and then I realized that the um, the research and development uh, laboratory was, you know, like this common thread through them. I, and, I, do every, I do as much as I can for them to stand alone, but if you if you read um, each story or if you read the previous chapters, you'll definitely kind of build on the lore that's in the world that's being built. Yeah, because they, they did. You can, you can, like, read chapter four before you read chapter one, and you 
you'd be totally fine. Yeah. Um, so did you have a specific uh, website like Pencil Jack or something where you found the artists for that? Um, for, for this one, it's been pretty self-sustaining so far. Um, I had a group of artists, um, who, like I said, who I've been who I've been trying to work with. And so when I finished the the initial four stories that are online now, I reached out to a couple people and I said, here's this new thing that I'm trying to launch. Here's a couple scripts. Um, give them a read. Let me know if anything you know, is interesting to you. And, and as it worked out and it worked out brilliantly is that um, out of the, the five artists that I contacted about launching the project, uh, the four of them jumped on and they each chose a different story. So it worked out perfectly, even from a logistics standpoint. That's really remarkable. I know that never happens. Yeah, here I thought that, you know, because I saw that at the bottom of your page, like you have if you're interested in, in illustrating, you know, to contact you and stuff like that. So I didn't know if there was, um, if you would like had to actively go out and seek people or, you know, if you've already got a social network going of of peers, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I've gone out to, I've gone on Pencil Jack and I've gone on digital webbing and just kind of announced what we're doing, trying to get more people um, and while we were promoting the initial four chapters, because how I how I ran it was throughout the month of November, uh, I released a, a new short story every week over the course of the month. Um, and within that first month, I got enough artists coming to me that we're now in production through chapter, I want to say, 18. So it's it's been pretty good. And everybody's been um, willing to help. Everybody has a very different art style. Everybody kind of understands what the, the project's about and what, what it's going for. So it's been, even from just uh, an organizational standpoint, it's been really straightforward. And, and a lot of the artists who have contributed, uh, they're coming back again saying, hey, what's what's next? Can I do the next chapter of my story? So it worked out just beautifully, it's, it's, and it's been a ton of fun. See, you're the kind of person that everybody's just going to hate. <laughs> <laughs> All the other new writers out there are just going to be like, that West Loker! Uh, no, I hope not. But um, it's just about giving giving the artists fun stuff to draw. They're... I mean, the the guidelines for them are really, really limited. They they come in and they do their own thing. It's it's you build this world. You decide what these characters look like. Um, I have a, just a, a reference file that I keep now online that if somebody has to draw a character that's already been drawn by someone else, I can just give them a link to where they can see what that guy looks like or that gal looks like, um, and they can pick it up and kind of do their own interpretation. So it's 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 good. It's it's one of those things that people are bringing their own creativity to it. I have a couple of the contributors. Um, there's a guy named Stan Chu who did uh, the fourth chapter. That guy and I, I mean, we just bounce ideas back and forth all the time now, and he's he's really kind of kind of into what is going on, and he's almost taking ownership of the characters that he's drawing. So just to see uh, people kind of come in with that enthusiasm has been really really cool. Oh yeah, that was it, well. All of the art has been really really great, but I definitely uh, because he got to draw some uh, android robot. <laughs> characters and it was fantastic yeah so he's already working on um he's working on at least the next two and probably even further than that i mean that guy's he seems to be in it for the long haul and i and i appreciate his brain uh just a real smart guy he he has a lot of subtext to things um so just to have people come back with this this world that you're building and, and want to throw in their two cents and and bringing ideas to the table that's that's a really good collaboration that's that's kind of how i like to work so is stan um in the states, also, yes. or is he? Stan is stands in Brooklyn, actually. Sweet. Yeah, I got to I got to hang out with him at uh, the New York Comic Con this year, which was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Um, it's just it's so you know I mean the the world is so small now that there's so many artists like you have a couple artists that are in other countries, 
and I'm talking to somebody for the next episode. I'm going to be talking to somebody in Italy. Oh, cool. So it's uh, it's pretty wild in that, you know, uh, there are times when I'm actually shocked to hear that a writer and artist are near each other, perhaps. Um, <laughs> you know, like the, I think the Dead Horse guys live relatively uh, close to each other because they go to conventions together. So, That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's such a different kind of thing considering when you want to go travel to cons, you know, and set up at a show or something like that. It's like, well, your artist might be 3,000 miles away. <laughs> right. That would be cool, though, just to, to be able to work with someone face-to-face. I Right now I kind of live out in the middle of nowhere, so that's that's not necessarily going to happen, but I think that would be a really cool dynamic. I would love to try something like that. With um, Before I lose track of, of the innovation comic, though um, – you had mentioned that you were up to like chapter eighteen. Yeah, like planning. We are. I have written um, over a hundred pages of script for it that are that are kind of off in various stages of production. And and how we do it is is I say that the the comic is done. Um, it, it's it's not it's nonlinear. So as people turn in their chapters, they can they can go online pretty much in any order, and people more or less have to kind of sort it out as they go along. But because they're shorts and because the characters are familiar, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm more essentially giving them the pieces of the puzzle and they're going to have to kind of put them into place as they go along, which I really hope isn't asking too much because a lot of people really like Lost. And that kind of was, you know, that was the that was not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to follow. So I'm kind of hoping that people can can bring that open mind to this project as well. And then one day, uh, once we've reached the end of the the first arc, hopefully I can collect them and I can put them in the correct order and keep it simple for everybody. Okay, so there's um, well, so you're you're specifically planning like an, an ending, to, you know, for what's going online first, anyway. Definitely, there's going to be an, an end, um, a complete first arc that'll leave the characters in certain places, and then. I'm already kind of planning out the the second arc, so I want to have a, a closing point, um, but the story will just keep continuing on. So that way, if we do decide to to print them or the, if they are going to be collected, there's there's a logical kind of ending point. Right, and I didn't. I mean, I didn't mean for that to sound like stupid or anything. That there's <laughs> no, that there wouldn't all. be an ending an ending point, but because every like five pages has an end. Right. That you know the fact that there's like a global ending. Um, you know, I didn't know if that needed to be done, if there was anything that needed to be wrapped up. Um, but the the four chapters that are out, uh, I really do encourage people to go check it out because it's just uh, I, like I like science fiction, but I'm not a hardcore person. You know, like I don't I don't need to watch the director's cut of Blade Runner. I mean, I suppose <laughs> if it's on, I'll I'll turn it on. But like, you know, I'm not going to salivate over it. Right. Um you know, I just think that some stuff is really cool. And there's, it it just kind of doesn't seem like there is that much in comics except for superhero science fiction stuff like, you know, Green Lantern Corps and Nova and, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like that. It's, I'm not feeling too much of the earthly science yeah, these days. This is definitely grounded in, in as much reality as we can get it in. Um, I, I would say just for anybody that's listening, if if they like what's going on in a book like, um, you know, like Black Science or uh, the Manhattan Projects, I think this is going to be kind of more up that alley. Um, so if they if people are into those books, they should definitely give this a look, too, because it's kind of riding that same vein. Um, the book itself is kind of um, how technology, the good and the bad that comes along with its advancement. 
Um, somebody that read uh, Innovation, I can't remember who it was, basically called it, this is what would happen if, if Google went crazy. And I think that's a, that's a pretty good way to describe it. So um, it's, it's grounded, it's real, it's, it's stuff that could, you know, potentially happen one day, depending on how things continue to develop. So if they're into technology um, or if you're scared of technology like I'm starting to be, then this is, the, this is a good little comic for people to check out. I think fear of technology is an okay thing, especially <laughs> because it's, I mean, it's used against you. I mean, there's, you know, like even drones, like drones are a very incredible asset yeah. that could be used. I mean, they, you know, there's so many applications for them that could be really, really helpful, but at the same time, they're, they're being used for destruction and, you know, carelessness as well. Absolutely. And that's, and that's a great way to, to look at innovation as a whole. It's, it's what are the, the positives and negatives that come along with what's going on and how does, how does the human factor kind of go into that as well? Right. And I noticed that you were trying to incorporate a human factor in with your uh, like your robot technology or right. AI that you have the robots being programmed, um, that you have emotions broken down by program. And and I have right. no idea how they're doing it. Like, I know that there's that they're really working on robots out in Japan and stuff um, like, you know, the Osimo and stuff like that. But um do you? I noticed that the uh, you know, a little spoiler here. The um, the the robots get programmed with aggression because <laughs> the computer programmers decide that um, that like being friendly is too hard to program. Right, right. They get they get bored with all the the boring stuff, so they decide to to pop in the old aggression disc and see what happens. And it it doesn't unfortunately doesn't end very well for them. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think that's kind of a tricky thing. I think, I mean, it might be true that love and friendship are too, too extensive to program, <laughs> but then anger that, is, is quick. And that goes back to where, where as a human race, where do our interests really lie? What do we really want to see when we're in control? So it's kind of, there's, you know, there's some commentary and, and there's some, some ways to, to think about things. But um, whenever I look through, you know, I can look at the Google's technology news and see what's going on, and I can come up with 20 new ideas for, for new chapters right there. Are you a, a moviegoer? I, I like the occasional movie. I, like I said, I, right now I live in the middle of nowhere, so if it's come out in the last year, I probably haven't seen it. But, um, yeah, I do I do the classics, and I've got the, uh, the Netflix for sure. Okay, yeah, because I'm more of a, a Netflix watcher, but um, I know that the, the new Joaquin Phoenix movie is out, Her. Okay. That... Um, it's sort of like half and half. Like I've seen, uh, you know, people who love it, like really, really love it. Um, but he falls in love with the AI, like of his device or something. Huh. That's cool. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and I think, what the hell was that? There was a Will Smith movie out years ago. Um, it might have just been called AI, actually. Oh, I think. You're, um, are you thinking of the iRobot? iRobot. There we go. Absolutely. That that, um, was, that was a fun one. That's the type of thing that's like. Yeah cheesy action, comedy, technology. That's another good thing. If you liked that movie, come check out our webcomic. Definitely, because the it had a you know, it's it had a sort of different it didn't have the Star Trek feeling to it. Right. You know, like Star Trek they they have data and <laughs> it's you know, it's a little there's something there's something very different about the approach to to programming and to technology on Star Trek. It's you know, and that's you handled it very differently. You handled it, um, like I said, it was very, you know, earthly grounded. Like, you know, people are probably sitting at their computers now working on this. Absolutely. That, and that was the biggest goal was just, I don't want, I didn't want it to be 
too fantastic. I wanted it to be believable to the point where it's something that we could very well see happening just within the next few years, whether it's um, a Google application or some type of, of military uh, application. Do you? I know. I know you from Twitter. Do you follow a lot of science people on Twitter? Uh, you know, I I don't um, because I kind of have to to get away from it once in a while. Um, but like I said, I do I do spend a lot of time listening to science podcasts, and I do like to read just what's going on um, in the news. So usually I'll hit up those two places, and and something and I, a new idea will will hit immediately just from exposing myself to those. One of my my favorites is um, the sarcastic Mars rover. <laughs> Oh, see, I've, I've never even heard of this. I'm, I'm totally missing out on good stuff, aren't I? Yeah. Oh, check it's, this out. I'm sure there's a legitimate Mars rover feed. <laughs> I'm sure there is. But I'm following the sarcastic rover. That's awesome. You've just made my day. I'm going to go find that. <laughs> um, and because it's, you know, it's laughable when you realize that right now um, Chicago is colder than Mars. But... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I I do like people who can make science entertaining because I I think I just started following NASA as well. But um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, it's just so fucking awesome, and Bill Nye, you know, I I I do love people that can make science fun because I'm you know I was not I was always interested in it but not necessarily good at it. I'm I'm right there with you. Um, so taking science fiction to me is like a a perfection of, of of the way that I can ingest science because it's like, okay, I'm sure, you know, somebody's working on that somewhere. So it'll be plausible someday. Right. Right. But at the same time, I don't necessarily need to explain what's going on <laughs> in the program. Like I don't need to, I don't need to give readers what the program actually is in order to say that I've, that there's a character and it's a robot. Right. And that's, that's part of the beauty of, of something like this is that you can, as, as a writer, you're only limited by your imagination. So science fiction is always kind of an easy way to to bring your craziest ideas into play, and not necessarily even have to explain the why behind it. Yeah, is that? Um, did you like sort of feel that as a kid too? Because um, you know, like Chambers is this this hardcore serious <laughs> police drama, and then you know you've you then you've got your comedy side, and then you've got your science fiction side. So it's um, you know, like, how messed up are you? With? <laughs> I'm pretty messed up, as it turns out. Um, no, I mean, just sci-fi was always there for me as a kid. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Star Wars person over Star Trek person. Um, but that's just where my interest has always been. And the weirder the movie is, um, the better. And, and if, even if you go through Netflix right now, there's so many crazy sci-fi movies um, that are out there that are just have the, the most ridiculous plots in the entire world. But th- those are what entertain me. Um, you know, like you said, uh, Blade Runner, love that movie. That movie's fantastic. Um, but even even the stuff that's more grounded is really cool too. Have you seen the movie uh, like Moon? Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Uh, heard you, of that. you need to check out Moon. Moon is it's got Sam Rockwell in it. Um, and, oh, I love Sam Rockwell. Yeah, exactly. He's he's totally great in this. Um, and it's just it's like a low budget sci fi movie. Um, but he, they just do amazing things and they kind of blow your mind with just very limited. Um, you know CG and stuff. So check that out if you can. And and also, uh, you seen Primer? Nope. Oh, you're missing out, Amber. Um, I am. I'm. I'm probably missing out on a lot. I'm not like <laughs> much of a movie watcher. No worries. So. It it shows you what's what's capable in in more of a 
more of a grounded type way and how you can still be fantastic even without um, you know, going huge CG and having spaceships and that type of thing. I think those are, are some really good examples of just how people can kind of mess with your brain on a on a more street level. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and speaking of Sam Rockwell, because I think Galaxy Quest is like the best <laughs> sci-fi movie ever made. That is a good movie. <laughs> I know, I'm going to get like burned at this stage, no, but you know. That's a good one. <laughs> um I haven't seen Gravity, so I, I I just know that people say it's brilliant, but yeah, I, I'm not. I, I haven't seen it either. But once it hits DVD, believe me, I'm there. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if I I really don't know if I can watch it because it seems so incredibly tense and stressful, <laughs> and I just I you know I I just can't deal with a movie that's that's that stressful. Like real life sucks. Like I don't need to be <laughs> stressed out. I want a movie to make me laugh or whatever. You know, action. You know chase car chase scenes that's fine yeah but tumbling um, through space just it hits a little too close to home it's just terrifying <laughs> it just is the feeling the feeling of isolation and panic like i don't you know like i i felt panic in the in newark airport like i don't need <laughs> to feel panic in my house watching a movie that's funny i felt panic in newark airport once too <laughs> it just brings it out <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Wes, what kind of travel schedule, speaking of airports, do you have? What kind of conventions are you going to get to? Um, you know, this year is is pretty open. I haven't decided where I'm going to hit yet because, um, well, it really comes down to the books being made available. For instance, Chambers is out digitally, but the, the trade paperback won't be out until March of this year. Um, so I'm kind of using that as, as my jumping off point. After March, I'm going to be figuring out where I'm going. Um probably won't be tabling at a lot of conventions this year. I did get invited to uh, Wizard World Portland in 2015, so maybe that will be my grand debut. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but awesome. but that way I'll have Chambers out, I'll have Unit 44, uh, we'll do some type of collection with Innovation. I've got a couple other series that are coming out uh, this year. So um, the, the further away it goes, the more that I can kind of bring to the table. So hopefully by the by the end of this year, um, early next year, I can I can kind of be a mainstay. And whether or not I'm tabling, I'll, I'll still try to go to some and, and check out what's going on. There's one coming up um, in Orlando in, I think, March, and that's not too far away from where I am. So I'll go hit that up, too. Yeah, with the, you know, the ease of, of digital, it's such a different ball game now to consider tabling at shows because of the expense. Absolutely. But you have, yet you have to go so far in advance, too, to even get a table that um, you know, yeah. for me, just with without having so much available physically, it, it's hard to to get a table when you know, hey, I'm I could just be me sitting there and and drawing on a pad of paper if nothing else. So I want to make sure that when I when I started tabling, I I had a good variety and I had a lot of product that I could kind of sell and advertise and build buzz for. I'm just like I'm I'm contemplating like what that's going to do to the you know the whole idea of tabling at shows the more and more stuff that goes digital very true like you know the, your people are going going to have less on their tables um i mean it certainly makes it easier that you're not hauling 10 white boxes to a booth somewhere and you know worrying about all of that but at the same time then what are you doing at the table right other than you know shaking hands and um you know Doing panels, yeah. you know, panel, the, panels are great. One of the things I noticed at uh, the New York Comic Con this year was just that there were a lot of people that were giving out uh, digital codes uh, if you bought anything yeah. from their booth, and and maybe that's maybe that's the future. I know, like publishers like Two and Five, they they sell um, USB sticks with all of their books yeah. on it. So maybe maybe that's kind of what we're looking at. 
They do. And theirs is like remarkable. I think their their like flash drive is like sixteen dollars or something for their whole collection. Yeah, it's insane. That's awesome. Those guys are I love those guys. Okay, well, if you're not even tabling, I still might run into you if you uh get pop up. I wanna pop I wanna up. get out and about, even just, just I think networking is such a, a big vital part of the process and part of me almost you know, when I went to New York Comic Con this year I was I was glad that I wasn't tethered to a table. Um, because yeah. as I just went around and I talked to people at Artist Alley, it's like I could see how much they just wanted to to get away and go talk to people, and I felt like they were kind of stuck there. Um, so maybe just having that freedom right now is is probably the best thing for me, just to be able to talk to editors, talk to publishers, talk to um, artists and writers. It would be great if instead of constantly increasing shows to three and four days, if they isolated one of the days as an industry networking. Oh my gosh, day. that would be that would be probably what's what's missing i think at this point because there's only i mean first of all you're exhausted you've worked a 10-hour day at a table and then you're going to go quickly back to your room if you're lucky you're probably maybe eat something if there's time and then you're off to a bar hopefully to try and do that networking and socializing and relaxing with you know other people in the industry and that's really it's it's just so exhausting that's why everybody gets sick all the time right and then even then if you're if you're staying out all night doing the networking thing, then you have to go back to the table the next morning and, and you're probably yeah. not going to be working at 100% at that point. Exactly. I, I really would love if there was a show that had like an isolated day for networking. That's a really good idea. How, how do we do we need to start a petition? How do we make this happen? We should do that. Let's look yeah, like, um, how can we do this? This should be maybe Baltimore or New York. I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to pick one of those shows. There we go. And how can we kickstart it? That's the other thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that way everybody's table fees for the day are covered yes. so that the, the convention right. itself doesn't doesn't think they're losing money. This is genius. Um, it's going to happen. It is. It's brilliant right here. Copyright trademark. <laughs> West Local Amber Love. Um, and so, like I mentioned, you are on Twitter. So let's get your information for people to cyber stalk you pro- appropriately. Fair enough. People can find me on Twitter at, uh, I think it's just twitter.com slash Wes Loker, and that's W-E-S-L-O-C-H-E-R. Um, I'm, I do the Facebook thing. I have a page set up at writer Wes Loker, um, and then people can just go to my website at westloker.com. This is also original, isn't it? Like it I, is. It's fantastic. I can't help but remember, like, back in the day when I was a kid, it was all about coming up with, like, the coolest screen name that really defined you as a person. Zero cool. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's just like, ah, if I can get my name, I'm lucky. So, just yeah. type my name into anything and then go check out innovationcomic.com and, and you can kind of branch out from there and find all the good stuff. I think that's great. And I, I'll, con- I'll continue to stalk you on Twitter because it's enjoyable. Well, thank you. I do what I can. <laughs> All right, Wes, thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I look forward to more of Unit 44 and innovation and, um, you know, can't wait to see the, see the new pages. Cool. Well, I will keep sending you stuff as it's available. Thanks. Absolutely. So, guys, you can follow me, of course, at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter and AmberUnmasked.com. Um, and if you're listening through iTunes, Stitcher, or directly through the website, whatever it is, just uh, feel free to leave some feedback. And now you can go follow Westloker. And um, don't forget uh, all the links that we've mentioned. They'll be in the show notes as well. So you can, um, you'll, you know, find Comics Tribe and the other great websites that we're talking about. And uh, thanks again. 